title of our message this morning, Indecent Proposals, from Genesis chapter 34. A few years ago there was a a movie with um, Robert Redford, and I think it was uh, Demi Moore, which presented an ethical dilemma for a married couple and the outcome was quite troublesome. And it, it sort of carried the audience, the, the, the viewer, to, to ask themselves the question, what would you do in such a situation? Can a dollar value be placed on marital faithfulness? How much would you be willing to surrender? What would you be willing to receive in exchange for your faithfulness? In the passage before us is, I just have to, as, as, I, as I read it, you probably got the feeling inside of you to say, this is there's so much wrong here. It, it is, in fact, one of the saddest chapters in Scripture with a couple of indecent proposals dealing with even less, the outcome is even, even less redeemable features from the whole chapter. So sad, in fact, that even God's name is absent. It is the only chapter in the Bible outside of the book of Esther where the name of God is not mentioned. At least in Esther, we see the fingerprints and influence of God. But this is not the case here. This is what tends to happen when God's name is, God's influence is removed from the actions of society. Oh, he's there, but he lets people do their own thing and that's what happens. At least we can see the consequences and these words are here in Scripture to teach us lessons of what can happen. Notice how the preceding chapter 33 ends with the Hebrew words meaning there was a Hebrew name at the end of chapter 33 and the And the meaning is, mighty is the God of Israel. That's a fantastic name. Mighty is the God of Israel. And the the chapter 35 starts with these words, then God said. So they're like, again, like, like bookends as to what happens in the middle of this chapter where the name of God is absent. The name of God is not mentioned in this mayhem. One lesson is a very simple one, that you leave God out of your life and all, of, all kinds of brutal behaviour ensues. Before us is a passage filled with sin and godlessness, one crime after another. So we have to do some investigative work to see how it all got here. How did we come to this? Last week we saw how Jacob didn't follow his brother Esau. After the reconciliation, there was an invitation there to follow him home to the land of Seir, which was good. He, he didn't follow him because that's not where God called him to go. But he didn't get to Bethel either, which was where God wanted him to be, to go. He didn't get there either, which was bad. He chose to stay at Shechem with his family. Why? 
Well, because of certain economic benefits. Shechem was a crossroads of trade and useful place if you've got livestock to sell. But he wasn't supposed to settle there in the first place. Remember the other patriarchs also got to places they weren't supposed to be and that led to all sorts of trouble from lying about their wives and all of that stuff and God still blessed them but they certainly got into a lot of bother. Jacob should have gone to Bethel and the Lord underlines this in the opening verse of the next chapter. Go up to Bethel, chapter 35, verse 1, and settle there. So after all the mess that we're going to look at, this is where you're supposed to be. If he had done, if he had just perhaps thought about a little bit more about his actions, then with a bit of foresight he could have avoided all of this calamity. Of course, like most of our lives, we tend to be geniuses in hindsight. Should have done this, should have, could have, would have type of thing. But this is in fact why we have the lessons in Scripture so that we don't have to go through the experiences that these uh, these patriarchs and others went through. The lesson is simple. As simple as choosing who you are going to serve without compromise. One of the billionaires, one of the influential billionaires of the world is George Soros. He's an atheist of Jewish background. He's an avowed atheist billionaire who funds many of the activism and protests that you see in the world today that influence through lobbyists and everything else to change many of the laws in countries. He's quoted as saying, I am basically there to make money. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of what I do. He is focused on his mission. No compromise. That is his goal. That is what he wants to do. He is following his worldview with no compromises. And it is often the child of God, like Jacob, who finds himself in a battle between good and evil because there is always a temptation to to compromise. So the story this morning serves to warn us of the high price that we often pay because of this. It's a warning about halting our pilgrimage, halting, stopping our, our, our spiritual pilgrimage and choosing to, to focus on material values alone. Looking at this material world from a physical perspective alone, a life of ease and comfort that retirement is the, is the be all and end all and then we're going to be happy. But if only we have just enough to settle down then our future, our happiness will be secure, our joy is assured. No. What a chilling reminder that half-hearted obedience can be just as deadly as 
full-on disobedience. So let's look at the passage. Proposing. Remember that we're looking at indecent proposals. We're looking at proposing after violence. Verses 1 to 7. Nadina, the daughter of Leah, that Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land when Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw her, he took her and raped her. Dina was Jacob's only daughter. And one day she is out visiting the local girls. Why was it so important that she get out to know the women of the land? Why didn't her mother and father, somebody dependable, accompany her or the brothers even on this sightseeing trip? Was Dina naive, rebellious or just plain ignorant of the ways of the world? Well, we can excuse the brothers because the brothers were working in the fields. The, the, the verse tells us, the scripture tells us that. Where are the parents? They know that Shechem is a corrupt and godless place. How could they allow their teenage daughter to wander the streets of such a wicked city? Did Jacob teach his sons and daughters about how they should live, the choices they make? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Parents know, parents know. All too well that you can teach and warn your kids, be constantly at them till the cows come home. Do they listen? I don't know. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes the voice of their friends is more powerful than yours, apparently. As they grow up, they can go and do their own thing despite the the best intentions, the words of encouragement, the hours and days and years of, of training them in the ways of the Lord. Let me ask you a, a simple question because I know that parents who have got young children and, and everything else or even young married couples who still have no kids have this idealism of, of how wonderful parents they're going to be. And then your, te- your, your kids become teenagers and the influences, there's, there's a clash of worldviews here. And I've been criticised about my parenting skills by even you know, members of my own family about what a good and terrible job I'm doing, depending on what day it is. You know, you know how, how it goes. Let me ask you a, a question. The, prodigal, the, the parable of the prodigal son. How many are, are willing to accuse the father of doing a terrible job in educating the prodigal son? We know we don't want to do that because that is, uh, obviously, it's, we're talking about God. That picture is God, the waiting father. But how many are actually willing to say, well, maybe he didn't bring up the son in the right way. Maybe he should have tried this. Maybe he should have tried that. And definitely, if your son comes out and says, 
I want half of the estate, I want my share of the estate, definitely would never, ever give it to him to just go and do whatever he wants. Who would do such a stupid thing? Or maybe the father did train the child best way possible and he still went off the rails. But the father never gave up. The door was always open. And his arms were even wider than the doors, waiting for the son to come back. Only life, living the pig's tie, will teach him, in fact, the truth. In the pig's tie, he was reminded of the truth, of the words of the father, the love of the father and all that. But the only way he could learn the lesson was in the pig's tie. One can understand having all those brothers and no sisters. One need to hang around with the local girls. That was Dina's situation. It looks like she went without parental permission and no one went with her. But it wasn't just the girls that hung around here. The local boys did as well. And that is where Prince Shechem also went looking for fresh talent. He had his eye on the new girl straight away. And the words here are like like rapid fire gunshots. They're like bullets, bang, bang, bang. He saw her, took her, raped her and kept her. What made it worse was that Shechem, the rapist, was a person of power. He was a prince. He had all the power he wanted. And rape is really all about power. It's got nothing to do with pleasure. It's, it's about power of the worst, disgusting, degrading, humiliating type. A terrible, horrible crime. It's peculiar that after the deed that Shechem, in verse 3, he tells us that he began to love Dina. And the Bible uses ordinary language here, the type of words when, that we hear a lot today when they talk of feelings and desires and lust and all of that. But when they talk of falling in love, you can fall in love just as easily as fall out of love. But he was infatuation. He was a mixture of good and bad. He was just lust. He didn't treat her tenderly. True love does not defile. Evil people can know the words and can say all the nice things and sweet talk their way out of stuff. Smooth, but their deeds are rough, wrong, evil, disgusting. This love is not the love the Bible exalts, which God requires. What is the love that God requires? Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not rude. It is not 
It is not. It is not self-seeking. It is not your own pleasure. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always protects. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. That is love. But Shechem showed no such thing. You see, the rich and the powerful take little time to consider the consequences of their actions. But Shechem was about to find out. In verses 8 to 19, proposing to deceive. Proposing to deceive. Then Shechem's father Hamor went to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields and as soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. So the fathers get together after the deed is done, talk about what had happened. Shechem's father, Hamor, that's the king, he proposes a marriage between his son and Jacob's daughter. Then he went further than that by asking for a formal treaty between Jacob's clan and his tribe. There is no apology. Neither the king nor the prince offer an apology. Uh, Apparently they assume that, oh well, you know, this stuff tends to happen. No offence, no big deal. You sort of get the feeling this was normal behaviour amongst the Shechemites here. In essence, what he's saying is no hard feelings. Let's just all get married and be happy and make money. Forget about all this other stuff that happened. Here is this intermarriage being proposed between those who worship God and those who worship idols, the pagans. And when Jacob's sons heard about the rape, they react very differently to dad. They were furious. No more so than Levi and Simeon. They just happened to be Leah's sons and were therefore full brothers to Dina. Not half, but full. They had grown up together. They lived on that side of the compound with all of Leah's kids and Rachel's and that's how the household sort of worked. The brothers, says the other, were filled with grief and fury. And the reason was because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel. It appears that, remember how last week we spoke about the the fact that God changed the name of Jacob to Israel but then we have the, the interchange between Jacob and Israel throughout the passage because Jacob had not fully assumed his new name of Israel, but the boys did. It appears that the, boy had, the boys had taken the new identity that God had given Jacob, Israel. They knew that from that moment on the children of Israel were different from the world. They were distinct. Because the creator of the universe was in, in a covenant relationship with them. God wants his people 
to marry his own kind of people. Godly people. Because God's people are set apart. There there will be no intermarriage between believers and unbelievers. I wonder how many of us this morning share the same conviction, particularly if you're still unmarried. Do not do such a thing. Do not even consider such a thing. In the eyes of God, that will be an indecent proposal. When you're looking for your husband or your wife, make sure that they are believers who share the same conviction in our Saviour as hopefully you do. Last week we spoke about fearing the wrong thing. And sometimes fearing the wrong thing comes into relationships because we fear, oh, as long as they marry that, they'll be financially secure for the rest of their life. We don't have to fear about them going broke anymore. But what about the spiritual side of things? How's that going to work out? And fearing the wrong things talks about different priorities, isn't it? If you fear God, then everything else is set into place. Now, the Bible here also says that these guys, the boys, got really upset. The Bible does allow us to get angry, Ephesians 4.26. It does allow us to get angry. What it doesn't allow us to do is sin in the process. Grief and fury are appropriate emotions if they are in response to what angers God. The problem is we get angry over the wrong things or things that we shouldn't get angry over and we don't get angry over things that should make us angry. Moses is not in doubt here about, you know, he's not a moral relativist, you know, that he just basically, oh, it's okay. He certainly knows he's right from wrong when he says a thing that should not be done. No question about the fact that this was wrong ought not to be done. Now, since Jacob, the patriarch, wasn't saying very much, Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor. But they do so by mixing truth and deceit. And this is where it gets ugly. They, they were planning, they were scheming a revenge against the Shechemites. The truth relates to circumcision where Jacob's sons here, yes, they were part of the covenant, but they use, unfortunately, what happens now, even though they are part of Israel, they use a symbol of the covenant which was circumcision as a card to play on their victims. Because you see that... The circumcision was an outward symbol of an inward commitment to God. 
being separate from the rest of the nations. But the way the sons of Jacob carried out their request that these Canaanites be circumcised was a reversal of God's intention. They offered circumcision as a means for the two families to become one people. The Canaanites were not joining the seed of Abraham, rather the seed of Abraham was joining the Canaanites. It is despicable when the sacred is called into service for profane use. Something that was meant to be sacred as a symbol of their identity was now used for other purposes. Of course, what justified their Behaviour, what they use as a justification was the fact that their sister had been raped and so therefore from now on everything is okay from their perspective. In verses 24 to 29, indecent revenge. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and left. When the men of Shechem are at their weakest and vulnerable, obvious pain, Jacob's sons take matters into their own hands, going door to door, slaughtering the men in this genocidal spree. Later on, like vultures coming after a dead carcass that is on the field, the other brothers join in on the mayhem. Yes, the rape was a terribly disgraceful thing, But the wholesome murder of the men of Shechem, the looting of the city, the imprisonment of their women and children, boy, oh boy. The punishment didn't fit the crime. Remember the the law of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Yes, in the Old Testament it was meant to be an eye for an eye, just one eye for one eye. One tooth for one tooth. It's the, in, in Latin is known as lex talionis. But this is not just one eye for one eye. This is the whole head for an eye. There is no equity here. There is only exponential revenge. <coughs> they hit him with a hammer. The boys go in there with a sledgehammer and then some. This episode has been repeated in history over and over again, hasn't it? In so many different ways. At one point, early in Julius Caesar's political career, he he was having a few enemies and uh, 
he was just coming up in the world. That's Julius Caesar, the famous Roman emperor. And feelings, he wasn't as popular as he thought he was and feelings ran so high against him that he, he thought it best to leave the city of Rome. He sailed for the Aegean island of, of Rhodes but en route there the ship was attacked by pirates and Caesar, the great Julius Caesar, was captured. Now the pirates demanded a ransom of 12,000 gold pieces and Caesar's entourage, his staff, was sent away to arrange for payment. Caesar spent almost 40 days with his captors jokingly telling the pirates on several occasions that he would someday capture and crucify them man to man. The kidnappers were greatly amused but when the ransom was paid and Caesar was freed, the first thing that Caesar did was gather a fleet and pursue the pirates. Sure enough, they were captured and crucified, each one to a man on a cross. That is revenge. wonder how many times we've pictured in our minds that we would want to do that to our enemies if we do have indeed enemies. If only we could have them there and treat them the same way. And yet the words from the cross still ring in our ears, Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And this is where we're going to come to a blind spot. And verses 30 to 31. And we all have this blind spot. And I want to challenge you this morning. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, but if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute. This is the end of, of the chapter and the story closes in this, I think it's a, it's a tragic account of the patriarch Israel, Jacob, exposing his blind spot. All Jacob can think about is his own reputation, his own safety. His ego has been hurt. He thinks only of his lowered standing amongst the local inhabitants. Eight times the words me, my and I are used. Never mind the fact that his daughter has been raped, his sons abused the right of circumcision, they breached a peace treaty, a contract, Never mind the fact that every male citizen of Shechem has been slaughtered. Never mind the fact that the city itself had been plundered and all those women and children taken captive or that Jacob's sons had degraded and dehumanised themselves by committing acts of unspeakable wickedness. All 
he cares about is his reputation, his self-preservation. But we're not like that, are we? I'm not like that. Or am I? The whole idea of a blind spot is that you don't see it. Unless you actually turn your head and look a little bit closer. Much easier to remove the plank in my neighbour's know the, the little speck in my neighbour's eyes and the huge plank in front of mine. That's what's easier. And yet, uh, there are instances when Jacob gives us hope and there's the stare coming from heaven and there's his wrestling with, with God and he, you know, we brag about his new life and I love to preach sermons about the wonderful events but... You never, probably after this, very few times in your life you will ever come across a a sermon on Genesis chapter 34 again. It's not Sunday school material here, okay? Because we don't want to talk about this stuff. But it's here. It's here. And, and, and we can use Jacob as, as, as like I said before, like a, like a mirror to, to justify our own failings and say, well, well, look at Jacob. Look what he did. Look how bad he got. And that won't stack up with God. I'm sorry. You can't use that as an excuse. I'm sorry. Clearly, we need somebody greater than Jacob, the new Israel, the promised one, the one who was perfect in every way who rather than wandering around the desert for 40 years, he wandered through the desert in 40 days and never once succumbed to sin and temptation. The Lord who triumphed over his enemies and our enemies succeeded as the head of his house where Jacob failed. He overcame, he overcame every possible Temptation. Oh, he suffered, yes. But in him, in him, we have our hero, we have the one who is triumphal, is triumphant in everything. In him is our victory. And because he is victorious, we are victorious. Let me leave you with the words from 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. That is our Saviour. Amen.